any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring myself, Brian Keating, and uh, and someone I've known for over a year and I've been trying so desperately to get on the podcast because she shares so many interests uh, with me. She's uh, She's got the three Ps. She's got my interest in poetry, <laughs> physics, and she's a pilot. And we're going to talk about all those things today and what makes her tick. It's Joanne Roberts, but we're going to call her paradigm, a fourth P in the universe. And that goes along with polarization, which is how I came to meet her through the Simons Observatory uh, program that she participated in last summer. Joanne, how are you doing? Welcome to the West Coast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I love California. I'm doing quite well. Uh, not so great with the wildfire season, but you know, hoping it gets better as the years come. Let me read Paradigm's biography. She's a native of the universe. Paradigm, Joanne Roberts, uh, the Jovian. That I want to get into as well. How many nicknames can we get into? Uh, she was born and raised in Chicago. She's a poet and MC, musician and producer. I just had on Stefan Alexander, who was the president of the National Society of Black Physicists, is still, and his book, Fear of a Black Universe, was uh, endorsed by uh, none other than Chuck D, a public enemy. And your book is endorsed by none other than Cornell West. He said, <laughs> Sister Joanne will cause trouble in the corporate world. <laughs> she knows and speaks the truth. Uh, so she obtained a bachelor's of science and an engineering physics with a philosophy minor at Chicago State University. And she earned her private pilot license at SIU, Southern Illinois, uh, Carbondale. And she's now an astrophysic in the UC system. So we're in the same university. Um, so Paradigm, we always start off, every author that comes on the show has to confront the advice that you're given to never judge a book by its cover. But mm. I want to ask you, uh, since, since a lot of my listenership may not know about you, um, how did you get the name of this wonderful new uh, book of poems uh, called Continuum? And, uh, and what came, how did you come up with the cover art or the cover design? What motivated you to do those two things? Well, uh, first I'll talk a little bit about the cover. Um, I love astronomy and astrophysics, and that is one of my favorite photos. It was the deep space photo taken by the Hubble telescope. Uh, so I thought that that would be a good reference to the title uh, continuum um, in the sense of it being something that is ongoing um, and that, um, you know, that there are many layers and levels to our existence and to us. So I, I, I just figured that would be you know, a, a good reflection of where I was going with the poetry, but also a good reflection of my love for uh, the wonders of the universe. So. And it is a uh, delightful collection. Um, and, uh, and I found it, you know, really refreshing because, you know, there is that kind of a notion. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Um, Paul Dirac, who is one of the founders of quantum theory, uh, he was no fan of poetry and he used to say stuff that I would quote in my um, in my uh, poetry uh, uh, poet poetry for physicists class, which I taught with Professor Ray Armentrout, who won the Pulitzer Prize from President Obama back in 2011, I think. 
um, mm-hmm. she and I co-taught a class. And I said, I always wanted to teach, you know, you always hear about, um, you know, physics for poets, but we wanted to do poetry for physicists. And I started off that class, my lecture, we shared it together with Dirac's quote. He said, and I quote, in science, one tries to tell people in such a way as to be understood by everyone, something that no one ever knew before. But in the case of poetry, it's the exact opposite. In other words, it's poetry is like intentionally confused. How do you react to this, to this Dirac's quote, this disparagement of poetry? Is that warranted? Just so I'm clear, he's arguing that poetry is intentionally confusing. Correct. <laughs> uh, I feel that poetry is a reflection of life. So if the poetry is confusing, then it's just maneuvering through the existence of our confusing lives, <laughs> which could be very confusing at times. So, I mean, I just write through my life experiences. Um, there are many things in life that have confused me that I've gotten clarity um, by writing about it. Uh, so I, I guess that would be my take on that. I mean, life is a little confusing, you know, it's a little confusing for everyone. Uh, we reach points in our lives where we're confused by things or confused about which way to turn. I feel that poetry helps me to figure all of that out. So I would slightly disagree. I would only agree that poetry can be reflective of life's confusion, but I think that it can be a tool to help us get through that confusion. Mm. Yeah, I, I can't I can't disagree with that. I think, you know, Dirac, by the way, his own brother-in-law said that Paul never uses two words when zero will do. Um, but I actually think he was a deeply closeted uh, poet because mm-hmm. in his work, he made use of fundamentals of verse, of uh, economy, of parsimony, of this notion of symmetry and structure. And mm. I think poetry has a lot to teach physicists. And I think physicists have a lot to teach poets. What do you think about those, the inter intermingling of the two disciplines that you engage in? Well, um, I was asked a question before, um, how do you bridge the expressive arts with the sciences? And my answer to that was, well, I am the bridge. So the way that I maneuver through this uh, is to just trust that everything I'm about as a poet and everything I'm about as a physicist will always be in balance. And even through the contradictions, there are still compliments, right? They still complement each other in a lot of different ways. And I always find ways to bring poetry into my physics. And I always find ways to bring physics into my poetry. So it's, it's just very natural for me. I don't even really think about it, to be honest. It's just reflective of my love for the two fields. And do you attribute that to natural gift, hard work, um, struggle that you've had? In other words, why aren't more of our physics colleagues um, more conversant with the with the expressive arts? Uh, I think they don't know that they're artists. And deep down, they really are. <laughs> um that's the way that I look at that. Um, I spent some years teaching high school students how to rap, how to write poetry about stage etiquette, uh, recording, um, 
self-reflection, um, you know, using art as a therapeutic tool. And what I found is that a lot of the students that would come to me in the beginning and say, hey, I'm not doing this. I can't rap. I can't write poetry. I can't even perform. Like, And it gives me a lot of gratification um, by the time I'm done with them and we're rounding up the program. Um, they're rapping. They're writing poetry. They're performing in slams, winning slams. They're making songs, making videos. Um, and this all stemmed from them just not knowing that there is an artist within them. So I would apply that same thing to scientists. And I know that um, there can be a lot of pushback with that. But I feel that that's part of the reason that STEAM is becoming more prevalent as we maneuver through the arts and sciences as well. Um, so a lot of my research and a lot of my focus will be in STEAM, which is, you know, the STEM plus the arts. Um, I think that's the, the best way that I can answer that because I truly believe that everyone is an artist deep down in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it sort of gets taken out of them. And I feel everyone's a scientist or at least all kids start off as scientists. Mm -hmm. They're curious, they're playful, they're imaginative, they're inquisitive. Then they don't play well with others. They're selfish, they're jealous, you know, all the bad traits of scientists or yes. all the good traits of scientists. There's no such thing as a single edged sword. And, you know, what I'm trying to develop in, in my students uh, is an appreciation for what, you know, uh, people call the, the, the two cultures and but make it a third culture that mm -hmm. the arts are to be integrated. And I think the best uh, physicists are artists in a way, and it may be orators, it may be speakers and, and uh, your uh, victoriousness in, in, in slams. Talk about slams. Talk about freestyle how do those two things like square that circle to me? Cause I think, you know, there's an old Jerry Seinfeld joke and he says more people are scared of public speaking than of death. So you'd mm. rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy. <laughs> um, so that's, that's the way most people are. How did you, did you have an, uh, you know, an, an obstacle to that path or did it always come natural to you? The slams, the, the freestyle, how did, how did that integrate into your, into your persona? Well, first, I want to say I like your emphasis on how you believe that everyone is a scientist deep down, because um, I can see a lot of parallels with what you were saying about the imagination and uh, the creativity and things like that. Um, never looked at it that way. So appreciate that. Um, as far as how I've uh, moved through public performance and public speaking, uh, I still experience stage fright, believe it or not. Um, I've learned to appreciate it over time. Um, and that's something that I've instilled in my students. Like, hey, look, stage fright isn't something that's just going to miraculously disappear someday. I mean, even Beyonce, who is probably one of the greatest performers of all time and of our generation, has admitted to experiencing stage fright still to this day. It's very normal. Um, and what I do is I just... Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Allow it to give me that adrenaline that I need. And it reminds me that I care about what I'm doing. I care about what I'm saying, right? Um, and it helps me to really give my all when I'm on stage and really just trust in my art and trust in the message and trust that people will be able to receive it. And it always goes well, right? When I get off the stage, I'm always like, I should have said that differently, or I messed up that word, or I stuttered here, or all just because I stuttered this one word, now the entire performance is is mute, right? But um, the kind of feedback that I get lets me know that people don't even pay attention to the things that we pay attention to. We're our own worst critics, you know? So it's, it's just something that I've grown through, um, appreciating that stage fright does not go away, but, you know, seeing it as a tool that I can utilize to really give my all and remind me that I care about what I'm doing. And it also keeps me humble. When we think about, you know, kind of these, these notions of, of what we're good at, what we're not good at, people, what are people going to think about me? I'm reminded of two different biases that people have. One is the imposter syndrome, like I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, whatever, I'm not meant to be here, I'm inadequate. And right. another one is the spotlight effect that you were just talking about. Like, oh, like literally, you feel like there's a spotlight on you 24-7. And the truth is nobody cares about you. I, I'm not, I don't mean you personally, but like people, you know who most people care about? Themselves, right? <laughs> uh, so most people are 100% focused on themselves. And okay, every now and then they might be snarky or something else. Right, but the right. doing of it, the attempting of a great thing um, is in itself kind of uh, a, a character, you know, reformation that I think is is missing in most of my undergraduate students. You know, I meet them in their they might say to me, oh, it's hard. Like, I can't do that, Professor Keating. Like, I can't speak in front of people. Uh, I couldn't do like freestyle. Uh, some of my students are foreign students. Uh, it's really, I say, oh yeah, you know, I guess, I guess you were born knowing, uh, I guess you were born knowing advanced quantum mechanics. Like, I, I guess you were just like really good at Lagrangian dynamic. Like you were mm -hmm. born, no, you had to work at it. And right. nothing worth having uh, comes for free. And I think, what I think my audience would be really interested in is kind of hearing your, your so-called heroine's journey, like how you got here, the world line that you took, were there any, you know, like moments in time that were critical points, as we say in thermodynamics, were there, were there phase transitions? Um, because the name paradigm really evokes something central in science. And I'm curious if you can take us up, was there a paradigm shift where you became the identity that you are now? Uh, and all its and all its wonderful facets. Um, was it slow? Was it punctuated equilibrium? How did you get? Talk us through your world line from Chicago to Davis and into the universe. Oh man, uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> um, well, first I want to say that as an artist, um, I'll just elaborate on that a little bit. Uh, the first time I ever performed in public was at SIU Carbondale when I was training to be a pilot. And I had joined this organization called um, the, what is it, Underground Arts. And it's just a, a student organization on campus for students that were different variations of artists. And they would put on open mics and things like that. And 
I performed a piece that I had written and I was so overwhelmed uh, that I stopped mid piece because I just had to regather myself and catch my breath. Um, I kept forgetting my next lines. I mean, it, it, to me, it was like just a horrible performance, but the kind of uh, reception, uh, you know, the kind of feedback that I got when I was finished, let me know that I had something going for myself, right? Um, and it wasn't until I moved to New York um, because I've done a lot of traveling. I lived in New York for a few years um, where I began to perform more and I began to realize that I truly had uh, some sort of gift for the art of words. And I decided to dive into it further and uh, published my first book in 2012. And that was something I never thought I would see. I didn't even know how to do that. Um, but I found someone who was able to help me with it. And coming years later, I published two more books um, up until now, we have Continuum, which is a combination of those first three books with some of my latest poetry. I just combined it all into a collection or an, an, an anthology of sorts. But, um, you know, my, my journey as an artist has been just believing in myself. And the name Paradigm was given to me. Um, I don't remember who gave it to me, but I know that when they, it was, 2007 or 2006, I believe, they were just like, you're a paradigm. And I was like, oh, I think that's my name. And it just stuck. Um, even with that name, you know, where it's defined as something that serves as a pattern or a model, it's really allowed me to really see my place as an artist in society and the ways in which we contribute. Um, not sure. Have you seen uh, the Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams? I don't. What is it? Hmm. Okay. Any relations? <laughs> okay. Um, but I mean, that one scene where he was in the class breaking down to the students, you know, engineering, law, you know, medicine, they're, these are noble pursuits, but poetry, you know, the, the things that artists contribute to life, you know, that that is really what creates that balance between the creatives and the ones that contribute to pushing us forward technologically, you know. Um, and I really appreciated him saying that so much that I featured it on one of my spoken word albums. Um, but that's kind of led up to where I am now, where I'm pursuing a PhD in physics. And, you know, as an artist, I feel like it's always been polarized. I feel like there's just been this dichotomy of science versus the arts. You can't be both. You have to choose one or the other. Right. And that's the kind of household I grew up in as well. You know, I had the kind of father that was like, you know, if, if you want to play guitar, I mean, that's, that's fine, but you're not going to get anywhere with that. You know, this is the real world. You have to work. You have to make money. You have to go to school for something. You have to do something that's lucrative, you know. Um, and I believe that for a long time. But I think in recent years, I just got to a point where I was just, I just decided I don't want to choose between one or the other anymore. I'm going to create a bridge, be a bridge, and have the balance of these two beautiful 
uh, fields in my life. Um, and that is how I got here today, where I am in Davis, getting ready to start grad school, which I never thought I would be doing um, for astrophysics at that, you know. Um, as much as I love this field, I, there was a time I, I didn't think I was smart enough to even finish a, an undergrad degree in STEM, you know, but here I am and I'm very happy about it. And I'm happy to be bringing my artistic endeavors along with me. So. Mm. Uh, it's truly, truly inspirational. Now talk about yourself as an aviator, as a pilot. <laughs> um, I, I started, I thought aviation uh, at a, you know, immature age or a younger age than most people in, in graduate school. You did it, you know, even even younger and earlier. Uh, talk about that. What is aviation? Um, how does that tie into your persona, who you are, uh, your identity? Because I've heard it said by, I don't know, are you familiar with uh, John and Martha King, the King schools? Uh, they do like videos on flight training and stuff like that. I'm not a, familiar with that. Yeah, they, they, they do, they're actually here in San Diego. And I met him once, um, uh, the husband, John, and he said, like, being a pilot is an identity. Even if you stop flying, you never fly again, you're always a pilot for the rest of your life. All those who have slipped the surly bonds of earth have become pilots. And that's part of who you are. Talk about what does aviation mean to you, John? Uh, the first time I flew solo, I mean, that's something you never forget, Right. Because uh, that, that entire time, I, with flight training, with my instructor in the seat next to me, uh, you really notice the weight difference when you take off by yourself. <laughs> so I noticed that first firsthand. Um, but, I mean, ever since I was about six years old, I knew I wanted to be an astronaut, um, engineer, something of that nature. By the time I was in high school, um, I brought that down a, a few hundred thousand feet to being a pilot. Uh, but I mean, I was afraid to fly at first. You know, I was terrified of flying. I was convinced the first time that I got on an airplane that that was going to be the end of me. <laughs> I was 11 years old. Um, I embarrassed my sister. <laughs> you know, we were flying down to Houston to visit my grandparents from Chicago. And it was my first time flying. I think this was in about 96 or 97. Um, so to make matters worse, it was just me and my sister. I didn't have the comfort of my parents on the plane with me or anything like that. And I remember just bawling, like just being a hysterical mess um, because I was just convinced like this, this plane is going down. Like there's no way we're making it to Houston safely. Um, but once I experienced what it felt like to take off, and once we actually did make it to Houston um, and we landed, there was a, a slight fascination that grew from that. Um, so out of that fear came intrigue. And that is how I became interested in aviation. Um, and once I learned how to fly and I learned how airplanes work, and I felt what it feels like to be in the cockpit, to be in control, um, to be pilot in command. It was life changing. I'm no longer afraid to fly, <laughs> needless to say. Um, usually when I do fly, I'm just going through my head, everything the pilots are doing as we're taking off, um, everything they're doing as we're landing, you know, things like that. Um, 
And I just love planes now. Just, you know, it's uh, space shuttles, planes, you name it, anything with wings. I love it. And it, it's it's just a funny story to tell because it, it just goes back to me just being terrified and thinking that I was <laughs> going to die the first time I flew. Um. I want to read uh, a poem or if you could read it. Well, you don't have a, your book is sold out. Uh, I got my copy uh, delivered to courtesy of you, but I also got the um, uh, Kindle version the, um, online and everybody should do that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I love this poem, Black Aviator. Uh, I'm happy to covered, read. Yeah. Could you please uh, do me the honor of reading that wonderful poem, Black Aviator, one page 146 in the uh, hard copy in the paperback if you're playing along at home? Absolutely. So this uh, poem, just to give a little background, it gives a little more um, insight into my journey into aviation and my background growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, where there aren't many pilots, (laughs) you know. Um, But I was that kid that was, you know, six years old, um, infatuated with the universe, infatuated with space. And uh, you know, that's how all this came to be. So I'll just get into the piece. On the city's south side, there is only one way. Monday through Sunday, you must be weary of gunplay. Where some lack an education, but dream to make it out someday. Where you don't see blacks in aviation, still I chose life on the runway. Every time I'd board a plane, my kind was not in the captain's seat. And because of that, I figured there were other things I'd have to be. But when I looked into our history, I questioned all I was made to believe. I read up on Bessie Coleman and realized there is nothing I can achieve. I felt so weightless and free the first time I ever flew solo. It was like the sky was made just for me and God gave me a deal on the low low. I'm paving roads for that. I'm paving roads for the no names with payback and such incentives. Spent all my parents' money with no shame, because, you know, flight training is expensive. But no matter how hollow my means, I pursued and followed my dreams, finding light in the darkness I come from and sharing it with other Chicago teens. Today I go full throttle, rotate before the runways finish. With cloud nine at my wingtips, I now know the sky truly has no limit. So on the south side of Chicago, where many feel they have no options, Trailblazers emerge from struggle, and I'm here, a black woman in the cockpit. That's that piece. <laughs> I love that poem. It's always interesting. And you know, Joanne, because we we talked earlier, you know, we we're trying to coordinate this uh, interview for months now with our hectic schedules and your move to become a grad student, and then we decided we would do it on the day between our two birthdays, mine September yes. 9th and yours September 11th. I want to ask you about September 11th as a pilot, as, as an aviator, how did that day affect you? Uh, let's see. That was my hoping no one does the math here. (laughs) Um, but that was my 15th birthday in, in 2001. Um, it was a rough day for me. It was, a. You know, I I think everyone remembers where they were, what they were doing uh, when they started hearing the news reports, if you weren't in New York City already. Um, I was in Chicago. I was in high school. I was a, I was turning 15, so I was a sophomore. I was in my Spanish class that morning. And um, 
I remember just having an eerie feeling, you know, just I'm, I'm excited about my birthday and everything. But, you know, um, later on, I read about this some years later that it was kind of a collective conscious kind of a feeling that was felt globally by everyone um, before everything started happening, that something just wasn't right that morning. Um, so I, I was feeling that. And uh, the day transpired how it transpired. And, uh, you know, my, my birthdays ever since have not been the same. You know, the first few years were very, very hard. I even made the mistake of spending one of those years in New York City for my birthday. Um, and that was a very, very dreary day, <laughs> needless to say. Um, but, you know, I just make it a point to, especially these days, I just kind of have to just stay away from the media. Um, you know, I, I stay away from the news, things like that. I mean, of course, I keep an ear out to what's going on because uh, there's also just a slight paranoia that something can happen again on that day, right? Um, and it, I've come to find over the years that a lot of people that share my birthday, we deal with a lot of this minor PTSD that we experienced on that day um, and that we got from from that day and with that being our birthday. So um, I, I wouldn't say it changed how I approach aviation, um, but it, it did make me appreciate um, why I love airplanes and why I love aviation. Um, because for a while, a lot of people didn't want to fly anymore, um, myself included, but I really had to rekindle that within myself um, and, you know, allow that love for aviation to, you know, continue on even through all of that. So that that's the best way I can answer that question. Um, but it, it even 20 years later, um, don't do the math. <laughs> 20 years later, um, you know, it, it's still, it's a lot better these days, but, you know, there's still a slight, um, you know, just, and I, I feel like everyone feels it, you know, it, it's not just um, people that have birthdays, but I feel for those of us that do have a birthday on this day, it's it's a little, little heavy for us as well in, in a different kind of way, because it's, there have been some times where I've felt bad for celebrating, but I'm like, this is my day, you know, it's, it's the day I was born. I, I should be able to celebrate it. The 15 years prior to that, everything was great. Right. So I've made it a point to continue that on for the rest of my yeah. life. <laughs> well, I well, that, that's a beautiful. That, yeah. That's, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. It's a beautiful approach to it. Um, yeah. It was my, um, my parents anniversary, but they got divorced uh, before it happened, mm -hmm. so uh, it has a mm -hmm. it has a dual a dual significance in some ways for them. But yeah. you know, when I think about um, airplanes, which I associate with joy, with liberation, with freedom, and then being used as weapons, of course, with the innocent souls that we lost, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's it still hurts me. I was much older. Actually, I was flying to Chicago on that day from L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously everything got canceled, but it was a it was a, a truly truly you know sea change in my viewpoint of the world. And um, you know I, I can't uh, truly appreciate the significance of having a birthday on that day, 
but um, but I do want to uh, you know obviously uh, certainly wish you a happy birthday. And we'll we'll conclude with that later on. But before we do that, I want to talk about uh, some of my other favorite poems that revolve around physics. So I mean, you and I are kindred spirits. Like I said, physics. You're a poet. I love poetry. And um, and 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 you're a pilot. And I want to get in the physics uh, domain of your uh, ten dimension ten dimensional. Uh, personality. So there's two poems that I love. Uh, they're in succession. There is, um, uh, you know, kind of always throughout the book, there is uh, issues of race do uh, do appear. And obviously, that is something uh, that we should we should touch upon. Uh, but I want to ask you about to read your these two poems, Black Energy and Black Matter. Um, those are, those are so, you know, joyous. It's almost like an equation. And some of the E.E. E. Cummings like layout. I don't know if, if you if you did all the layout and everything, but it kind of reminded me of like the way when you look at Einstein's equations, the structure of the equations tells you how to do the math. And in your poetry, the structure of the verses is evocative. And I think I think it's beautiful. But anyway, uh, for readers that don't have it or listeners that don't have it, would you do me the honor of reading those two uh, black matter, black energy? Yes. Um, first, I want to give a little background for those two pieces, uh, because we, we're talking about race a little bit here. And I do want to say that um, those poems were inspired by the experience of being a Black woman, right? So I wrote the poems as a using the concept of dark energy and dark matter as a metaphor for the life experience of a black woman such as myself. So without further ado, I'll just get into them. Um, the first one is called Black Energy. 68% of the universe, she rises, overcoming gravity, accelerating expansion of the cosmos, Unsure of how she operates, unsure of what it all means, she outlines the emptiness of space, weak and strong forces of nature, carrying electromagnetic shields. As more space emerges, so does dark energy, and she dominates. And this next piece uh, along those same lines is called Black Matter. 27% of the universe, 80% of its matter, light from her stars not yet arriving to earth. Dark and seen, but unseen, unnoticed, unacknowledged, unobservable. Yet she holds the elements of the universe together. Groups of objects function together through her explanations. She rotates galaxies, filling them with her mass. Where her stars orbit faster, holes in black serve as gravity lenses in bend light. Not normal matter, not antimatter. She is dark matter, the invisible hand of the Big Bang. Those are those two pieces. And I can't help but escape uh, the notion that you uh, use the, the, the feminine. Um, talk about what, what is that? Um, how is it? in 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 this you know kind of universe associated with with a female um that resonates throughout the book um talk about that and and also this notion that you know the word cosmos you know i always point out cosmos and cosmetology 
they have the same root and that's like beauty. And then verse is like verse. And it's like the word spoken by God or whoever you want, the multiverse, mm-hmm. Alan Guth, uh, <laughs> Andre Linde. Um, talk about the feminine in the universe and, and, and this notion of, of, of blackness and, and what does that mean? My, my friend Stefan's book, uh, you know, is, is called an outsider's guide. Um, mm-hmm. how do you react to that? I mean, that's a very layered question. I mean, I simply talk about my experiences through race and the universe uh, through the lens of the feminine uh, because it reflects on my life experiences and it is a way for me to I guess maybe um, approach it in a therapeutic sense. Um, And I I think my poem, uh, which I want to read uh, when we're wrapping up here, Dark Matters, uh, definitely reflects on that as well. And I have a spiritual relationship with the universe as well. Um, And I don't feel that science acknowledges spirituality in the sense that it should. And I truly believe that balance exists everywhere and that parallels exist everywhere. And there are many, many parallels between science and spirituality. So my spiritual approach to seeing the universe through a feminine lens is also reflected in me explaining it in a scientific sense through my poetry. Um, and that's the best way that I can answer that question. Um, but then we'd have to dig into what is this concept of spirit science, right? And uh, the, the debate of whether or not spirituality is relevant to science. To me, it is, you know, but I totally respect people that think it isn't. Um, and it's the same approach that I have with philosophy, which I feel is the godfather of science. But even today, as much as I appreciate philosophy, I don't feel that science appreciates philosophy, at least like it used to. Um, So these are things that I dance around in my art, creating these parallels, creating these bridges, seeing these things in balance and creating this balance through my artwork. Does that that answer your question? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, we're... We're always perceiving things, you know, as you know, looking through the atmosphere, looking through the universe, it's seeing yeah. it through a dark, a dark vision or obscured. But our job as scientists, especially in my field, experimental scientists, is to design the, the perceptions that you can use to overcome your biases, to overcome and see things, as I say, you know, sensors and sensibility, not just the pure sense, not just the pure sensitivity, maybe not just the pure um, materialism. There has to be some notion that we are human beings and mm-hmm. some believe we are endowed by, by a, a creator, some force, some spirit, some don't, some find that anathema to science. Um, I, I think that uh, I agree. If you, if you had a more um, kind of balanced exposure to philosophy, you'd see it's the root grounding of all science, philosophy and mathematics. And I, I just think that that uh, truly resonates with me as well. 
I want to ask you to read, um, you know, maybe one more of your favorite poems, help us deconstruct it, maybe with a physics poet kind of take, like how to inculcate a notion of, of affection for poetry uh, in some of our colleagues who may not be, you know, might be a little more reluctant to, to drop that stoic analytic sense. Can you mm. take one of your poems and walk us through it and and see how we can do it analytically, not to deconstruct it for deconstruction's sake, but what do you think about when you're constructing such a thing? Mm. Okay. What comes to mind is a short poem I wrote titled Space Time. And this poem incorporates everything that we just talked about, right? Um, a little bit of metaphysics, a little bit of philosophy, uh, some physics, um, and also love, right? And the, the spiritual uh, association through love that I, that I have. And I'll just read it and then we can kind of deconstruct it a bit. Um, it's very short, it just goes, you say anything is possible, but you need space and time. Given the space and time, we will transcend space and time. Traveling at speeds faster than light, immeasurable to man in his physics. For you and I have no space or time for impossibilities. And that's that piece. <laughs> so walk us through, how, how, what is the cosmic genesis of that? What does it mean to you? How should we approach it and uh, think about it? Is it, is it multi-layered as it sounds or, or is it more kind of um, could be understood in many levels or is it more properly understood in a superficial way? It's uh, for me, it's very multi-layered. Um, when I'm in love, I feel that that transcends space and time, right? Um, the, the act of being in love um, is, is quote unquote godly, right? So when I think of this godly experience of being in love, I think of the universe and the experiences that it gives us and what we understand about it. And that goes way back to Einstein with his uh, approach to space-time and understanding of space-time. So I play on that a little bit in the physics sense, but I also throw that metaphysical, spiritual sense in there as well. Like, hey, given that space and time, we will transcend space and time. Traveling at, traveling at speeds faster than light, immeasurable to man in his physics because we technically can't travel faster than the speed of light, at least not yet, right? And so I play on that as well, like with love, this is possible, right? This is something that we can do. We don't have space or time for impossibilities in this space time. So that's where I'm going with that. <laughs> because, you know, as, as it said, and this is why I'm kind of more optimistic about artificial intelligence and things. You know, people say, oh, it's going to take over everything. I say, well, Einstein used to do what are called Gedanken experiments, as you know, thought experiments. Mm -hmm. And these thought experiments were ways to approach a reality that he couldn't access. Like, what if I raced alongside a light beam? Or uh, what he called the happiest thought of his life was when he realized if I was falling through space, I couldn't distinguish that from being, you know, a free fall from zero uh, G acceleration. And, uh, and the weak equivalence principle. And 
because of that, he called that the happiest thought of his life. Now, I can't imagine a computer, A, knowing what free fall is like, and B, mm-hmm. knowing like what's, what's happiness for a computer. Mm-hmm. And I think physics and poetry will always be things that only a human mind and a soul, perhaps, as you have, can illuminate. And, uh, and, I, and I think that's, that is um, part of what it means to be a complete human being. I see you as a Renaissance mind, as a scholar. And, and that you can approach things with courage. I think that is the fundamental trait. You overcome your fear of flying. You overcome, you know, these obstacles in your path as a youngster going to now going to graduate school. Uh, I want to just close with that. What do you look forward to most about graduate school? Obviously, you know, you're, you're just starting out. Don't know exactly where your world line is going to go. Um, you know, yeah. uh, and most people change their minds a couple times, even in graduate school. What are you yes. most hoping, big picture, to, to emerge whenever you emerge with whatever, um, you know, degree subspecialty you get, what are you hoping most to achieve? Well, for one, I am first generation. So I come from a very large family and I am the youngest and I am the second to complete a bachelor's degree. Um, the first to complete a degree in STEM and also the first to be pursuing a PhD. So there's a lot of pressure, right? Um, but it's also very, very beautiful. Um, and it, it's something to look forward to because I feel like I'm carrying the torch for my family, uh, for my ancestor, for the generations that I come from and the ones that will come after me. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that feeling, uh, because like I was saying earlier, I never thought <laughs> grad school was not even in my considerations, right? Um, let alone finishing an undergrad degree in, in engineering physics at that. Um, so, I mean, even just thinking about it now, because it's still fresh, I graduated in May and it's still very surreal to me um, that I actually completed that. Um, I look forward to more of that feeling, just going further because I can. And in a sense, I'm supposed to, because this isn't just about me. This is pushing forward for, you know, those before me that did not have these opportunities. And, you know, understanding that I am their wildest dreams, right? So in that sense, I'm greatly looking forward to grad school. In another sense, I look forward to giving back because like I I danced around this a little earlier, but I I was not the greatest student (laughs) growing up. I'm just being honest. Um, I was not good at math. I was not good at science. Um, You know, I struggled with these subjects immensely, right? Um, To the point that I thought you know, going to school for physics, I mean, who am I kidding? You know, I, I would talk myself out of it. Then there's that imposter syndrome that we spoke about, right? Um, which I still struggle with to this day. And I, I think about everything that I'm going through and what I'm accomplishing and the obstacles that I've overcome. And I think about kids that are back home in Chicago going to these schools that are, uh, you know, underfunded. They don't have proper resources. Um, You know, these are the kind of schools that I went to. And 
I want to give back in the sense of finding those kids like me who don't think that they are any good at physics and math or um, any STEM subjects who may have interests and fascinations in these subjects, right? Um, be it by way of anime or comic books or whatever, uh, because you get that a lot, but then there's like a hard stop with them pursuing it at an, an academic or professional level. And I just want to be there to um, do what I can to show them that they can, right? Um, I would love to teach math. I would love to teach physics in inner city high schools, inner city middle schools. I would love to start STEM programs that use the arts or the expressive arts as pedagogy to teach some of these subjects, which I think will catapult the interest in these subjects as well. Um, such as using hip hop as pedagogy to teach physics, uh, for instance. And that's something I'm building on. That's something I, I look to do more research on um, in grad school. And so, I mean, those are the main two things, like just, just carrying the torch, knowing that I've been past the torch and I'm, I'm moving forward and also not getting so far ahead that I can't turn around and, you know, give back and understand that I'm blazing these trails for many to come after me in the same way that those before me blaze trails to give me the opportunity to even do this. So I'm grateful. Uh, that's so, uh, so and delightful to hear. Reminds me of um, famous physicist uh, Yakov Zeldovich, who was in the Soviet Union, a Jew. He was oppressed and, and, and uh, struggled, but uh, he communicated to his student, Alexander Polnareff, who became my mentor. He said the word scientist in Russian means someone who was taught. And mm. that's the translation. And to me, that evokes a, an obligation that we have as scientists to repay you know, pay it back, but also pay it forwards. Right. And I'm just so delighted that you exist, Joanne, <laughs> because um, you really are this, you know, when I, when I first heard you and you read this, this one of your poems last year on the closing ceremony for the Simons NSBP program, um, you know, I was just like riveted. Uh, I got my kids all to shut up for <laughs> a couple of minutes while you read it so I could give it the attention it deserved. And there's so many poems in this book that are they're heart wrenching. I mean, you got to have you know a box of, a box of uh, a Kleenex nearby when you talk about you know quantum mechanics, love mechanics. There's heart wrenching stuff in here. There's deep stuff. There's yeah. fun stuff. There's you know I don't want to call it frivolous, but it's delightful. And I just want to thank you for this book. I want to thank you for for your mind and your contributions, uh, and that I have no doubt you're going to be a, a supernova in this field. And whatever you do, and I hope you'll stay in touch and come back on whenever you have a new project or something that you want to uh, share with the universe, because um, you're the reason in a large way. You're the reason that I started this, this mission that I'm on to connect the multiverse's greatest minds and people that inspire me. So I want to thank you for inspiring me. I want to wish you, uh, Joanne, a very, very special birthday. I'm not going to say what it is. I can't do the math in real time, but I want to wish you a special birthday, September 11th. Now, I will say it has, it has at least one very positive connotation. Absolutely. Thank you. And I would love to close with a poem if we have time for that. Because oh. uh, we were talking earlier about uh, why I named the book Continuum, and I was kind of thinking of, about that a little more throughout the interview. Um, because I, we understand a continuum to be uh, defined as something that 
keeps going and, and changing over time, right? Um, that explains my poetry. That explains me. That explains you. That explains life, existence. That explains the universe. Um, and in that sense, I think uh, this, this poem that I wrote is a, a very liberating and healing piece for us, especially in these times. Um, and when we met last year um, via the NSBP program with Simon's Observatory at Princeton, um, I was a part of a very, very, very interesting, intriguing, beautiful research that I was just having a great time being a part of. But we all know that outside of our doors, there were some very, very uh, energetic, chaotic things happening in the world. So this piece is bittersweet because I wrote it in that sense of uh, why I love astronomy, why I love astrophysics, why I love the universe, why I love space, because it gives me perspective about our experiences here on earth and as human beings sharing this life experience on this planet. And I think that we get so lost and so uh, divided at times just by our, our little differences. You know, I, I think I read somewhere, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, not sure how true this is, but we're 99% the same. Yeah. Oh, more. Yeah. <laughs> we're 99% yeah. the same. That's but right. But we're so divided by the, that, that 1% of differences that we have. Um, so dark matters uh, brings in that spirituality, brings in that philosophy, brings in that metaphysics, brings in that science, and also brings in that that art of everything that makes me me and why I love this work. So without further ado, I'll get into this piece. At the event horizon of a black hole, there's been a rising of black souls. We arrived in time capsules. We are the masterminds. Ford fast rewind, viewing stars from past design. We are the last to shine a mysterious class divine. These dark matters have beginnings and the origins of originality. We are just now earning our winnings, but we were here before the galaxies. An argument full of fallacy, but what you believe becomes reality. And what's in us is in the stars, so I view our history through this analogy. All that is old is new, and all that is new is old. Our sun has told the truth, reflecting seas like blue to gold. We are neglected as a collective, yet we possess these star qualities. I'm so invested in this perspective, earthed at center like Ptolemy. With silent Big Bangs preferred, like when the Big Bang occurred. These are times of civil unrest where now Big Bangs are heard. From that of the celestial sphere, we are the extraterrestrials here. We arrived from frozen suns, blaze resilient, the chosen ones. Among wildfires burning slow, we're enduring constant struggle. Turning whole via wormholes, we expand like constant Hubble. We are infinite yet finite, bringers of dawn and twilight. Sparking bright like pyrite, we were alive when we arrived. 
a monolith of afterthoughts, but we're layered like Earth's core. Take off, explore like astronauts. We are truly before, before. Without our dark energy, the universe would collapse into itself. We are the entities of that chemistry, bodies holding place like the Kuiper belt. The distinction between you and I remains to be a false dichotomy. For at the heart of purest life lies a sacred and beautiful geometry. Through devastation comes celebration, for our true wealth lies in astronomy. Yet many beings look down at night, aligned with man's unbroken economy. A virus claiming its older victims, I must look to the sky for solace. For we are all of the solar system. We are earthly flawed, yet cosmically flawless. Are we nearing our 11th hour? Will we fold under this pressure? With nature fueling our powers, we can change the world like that of Tesla. Make a life, but one can take it. Bullets fly, but we're the matrix. This is scientific, but also sacred, as no one ever truly dies. Through portals, we become immortal. I know now what my calling is. I look to the stars for reminders. We're survivors, and we come from something so much greater than all of this. That's that piece. <laughs> I love it. It's uh, it's touching. It's moving. It's inspiring, and it's also mind expanding. I I like to think of you as uh, an experimentalist in any way, and a, a Gedanken experiment, a thought experimentalist of the highest caliber and Joanne paradigm. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for for being who you are, and I hope someday we can fly together. And I hope someday we can do some poetry slams together and I hope we can do some physics together. Uh, you're at, I'm so glad you're in the university of California system. We didn't lose you back to those Illinois folks again or, or whatever. Uh, I hope we can have many strong interactions in the future. Thank you so much and happy, happy birthday, Joanne. And please go to my website, uh, www.meetparadigm.com. Uh, for more information on everything that I do, if you're interested in my book, you can purchase it there. You can read more of my poetry. You can hear some of my music and uh, just see what I'm up to. And my links to my social media accounts are also on my website. And I just want to say that if you fly with me, Brian, you got to make sure you got a strong stomach. I like to have fun. <laughs> I don't know. It could be a smooth landing. Who knows? I'll have links to all your stuff in the in the show notes and in the text box on YouTube. And uh Again, once again, thank you for sharing uh, this slice of, of the space-time continuum with me and my listeners. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter at Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.